Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Pleasure to be here today with uh, Professor Nathaniel Berman, who is a professor at Brown University's Department of Religious Studies and is an expert both in international law and in Kabbalah scholarship. Just to get a sense of that from the names of his, some of his books here, Other Side in the Zohar's Mythology and Divine and Demonic in the Poetic Mythology of the Zohar, The Other Side of Kabbalah. And on the other hand, passion and ambivalence, colonialism, nationalism, and international law. So it's a delight. I've never talked to us. I've talked to the folks, uh, experts in one, but never both. So thanks for taking time to talk. My pleasure. Happy to be here. So to start off, I'd love to get a sense of your journey. Like, what about your journey in, in your life led you to be someone who could write such, such diverse books? Yes, yeah. indeed. Um, well, I would say that uh, these two interests which seem to many people to be really different. 13th century Kabbalah, 20th century international law. For me, they're deeply, deeply related, and they're really related from my personal history. Um, I grew up uh, late 60s, I was a kid, and in the late 60s was a time of ferment in the United States. The civil rights movement was sort of at its peak and it had become quite militant. Issues of identity in the United States, issues of race, there were all kinds of liberation movements in the United States, the beginning of second wave feminism, gay liberation and so forth. Um, meanwhile, I was growing up in a community of Holocaust survivors mm -hmm. who were obviously traumatized by nationalism in Europe and also a very Zionist community, people who really believed in Jewish nationalism. Mm -hmm. And these issues of identity, issues of who you are and how you relate to the other, other, other races, other religions, other genders, um, was really front and center in my childhood as it is today and remains so today, both in America and around the world. And these kinds of preoccupations led me to try to think, how are we supposed to relate to the other? How both in a personal level and also at a national level and also at a group level. Mm -hmm. These were the issues that sort of structured my childhood and I think fit right into my academic, uh, two really two academic careers. Yeah. So yeah. picking up at that, on that last point, how, how would you say those two fields have intersected or, or contrasted and how they've informed how you relate to otherness? Okay. So let me first talk about my international law work. Yeah. Um, my uh, writing and research and teaching in international law is really focused on how has the world community dealt with claims for uh, national rights, ethnic rights, both in Europe and in the colonized world from about the early 20th century till today. Um, how have they seen, how has how the, the powers that be on the international scene, how have they seen these claims, claims from ranging from uh, nationalists in Czechoslovakia to nationalists in Algeria to competing nationalist claims in, in, in the Middle East? How have they related them? How have they understood them? And what I really discovered was 
when international lawyers and international statespeople started um, engaging with those claims, they were both afraid of them, thought they could be very, very destructive, but also thought that the international order could not be stable and secure until that energy, those energy, the energy of those claims for justice were somehow incorporated. And that kind of ambivalence about the relationship to these, these claims for identity has been at the focus of my work. Meanwhile, I grew up Orthodox and I've always been immersed in Torah study. And what I discovered in my early 20s that was that in Judaism, there is a whole discourse about otherness. Yeah. And that discourse is the discourse in Kabbalah, where the, the, uh, there are two sides to the cosmos. There's the holy side, the divine side, and then there's the other side. And it's literally called the other side, the Sitra Ahra, identified with the demonic. And a lot of the, 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 the thinking in Kabbalah is how do these two sides relate to each other? Do they come from a common origin? Are they destined to fight each other forever? Or are they destined to embrace each other and to reunite ultimately? Mm -hmm. Wow. So how, how, how might that abstract picture you just painted inform how we think about justice work today? Okay, well, we live at a time, I think, of great polarization. Yeah. And I think that's really to state the obvious. Yeah. Not only do we live at a time of polarization, we live at a time where people feel that they are being demonized and cast as radically evil, radically other. And in fact, it's very hard to get out of that. We live at such a time of deep division over basic values mm -hmm. that if you really believe in a set of values, it's almost hard to see your opponents as anything other than other in a, in a, in a very emphatic sense. Um, at the same time, those of us who are interested in justice think ultimately the world should be unified. Ultimately, we should figure out how to have dialogue with others yeah. um, and to somehow reunite. And how do we deal with that, that, that doubleness? Mm -hmm. On the other hand, absolute opposition. We feel like people who, you know, we believe in values, whatever, in whatever field, and the people who would disagree with us seem to be in a different moral universe. And on the other hand, anyone who believes in justice wants the world to be united. Yeah. And how do we deal with it? And I feel that in Kabbalah, there's a whole mythological discourse, a wild mythological discourse involving gods and goddesses and demons and devils. It's a wild imaginative universe, but in those imaginative wild stories, there's a lot of wisdom mm. about how to relate to the other and how to relate to this feeling of the other being absolutely other and yet somehow coming from the same. Mm -hmm. um, in international law, of course, it's much more concrete. There are a lot of discourses in international law about how claims for identity can be dealt with, from self-determination to minority rights to civil rights to all kinds of things. And there it's much more concrete, but underlying those concrete legal doctrines and regimes, there are, there are underlying philosophical ideas about group identity and how it relates to other group identities. Yeah. How, how, do we, how do we identify the demonic? What within the root cause of a system of oppression would we point to, or within the self, that if in operating in our daily lives where there's lots of gray, where we can actually point to something as actually that's a force, that's a force of evil, um, experientially or objectively, however you would categorize it? Well, let me start with the person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in because uh, in a way that's more relatable. Start yeah. with a person. Yeah. Right. So, for example, in in Hasidism, yeah. 
the, the, the one of the one of the uh, great virtues of Hasidic teachings is they took certain Kabbalistic ideas and they showed how it operated within the interiority of a person within yourself. So, for example, when you pray, a lot of people have the experience when they start praying, all kinds of distracting thoughts emerge, and sometimes unpleasant thoughts. Thoughts you'd rather think, oh, do I really think that? Illicit thoughts, thoughts of illicit desires or illicit resentments or hatreds, they come up out of nowhere. And you think, oh my God, is that part of me? Where is that coming from? I want to push that away. And one of the most profound teachings of the early Hasidic masters was that they said, no, don't push those thoughts away. Those thoughts are, par are parts of you that have been split off. And those, those thoughts that are coming out are parts of you that are calling out for tikkun, calling out for healing. And you have to know how to deal with those thoughts and to reconnect them with something holy. So if you have an illicit thought of desire, you think, well, that thought is really a little fallen part of the divine love. And I could figure out how to connect it to divine love, then I would feel whole again. But when you're experiencing, really experiencing, you're divided, you're having an internal conflict. So that's it on a personal level. Now on the social level, if you believe it in a particular value, let's say you believe in uh, welcoming the stranger, welcoming immigrants, welcoming refugees into your country. And then there are other people who feel absolutely they should be kept out. And, and, and if they come in, they should be imprisoned. Mm -hmm. How are you supposed to relate to somebody who opposes you in such a fundamental value? That's the, that's the challenge. I think it's a challenge today is how can I see people who I fundamentally disagree with as somehow also human, and I can oppose them, and somehow I can talk to them in a way that I can find something within them that relates to a value that, that I can, in a way, bring them around to a greater vision of justice. Wow. Um, so I wanna, I wanna circle back to something from uh, uh, 10 minutes ago, uh, which was, um, the 60s and both observing and or and or participating in the civil rights movement, but also having this survivor consciousness around us. And it feels like that pivotal moment in American history, but also because of 1967 as Jews, um, is a moment where Jews are deciding how to relate to the survivor status. And as you know, uh, there's those who go towards a human rights perspective, a universalism, that this kind of thing can, should never happen to human populations. And those who go towards a nationalism and a material and a and a militarism, um, and I wonder what did you see happening in Jewish culture, in American Jewish culture at the time, that would push one to one direction or another, right? What was it in Jewish thought or in Jewish culture um, that that kind of uh, helped to determine uh, where one would be today in their outlook in twenty twenty? Hmm. Great question. Um, well, I would say this. Part of what I glean from my studies, both as an international law right. scholar and as a Kabbalah scholar, is to try to see how these things are intertwined. Right. So let's take nationalism. Mo if you look at the history of most nationalist movements, you'll see that they have often have different strands in them, or, or even the nationalist movement as a whole will yeah. sometimes flip from one strand to another. And those two strands, as you just point out, are there's a strand of nationalist movements and activism uh, and thought that is more universalistic. It says, 
our group needs our own self-determination and we're going to contribute to the greater humanity with the with the unique contributions that we make and we welcome the contributions that others make a sort of a united nations idea right it's the idea of a symphony of voices um, and we're also open to influences from others and then there's another strand of nationalism that does not say that that says we are the we are the, the, the privileged voice, and the others are voices that we do not want to hear, and uh, uh, certainly do not want to compromise with them on any of our values. And in my own lifetime, I've seen this going on with Jewish nationalism and Zionism. Today, we have different strands in it. When I was growing up in the Orthodox world, Zionism, the Zionism that I grew up with was much more universalistic. It mm -hmm. was very, right. very much right. in favor of Jewish self-determination, mm -hmm. but very open to other kinds of struggles and open, for example, in the United States to civil rights struggles of African-Americans and others. Um, over time, other voices became much stronger, voices of particularism, of not wanting to out and make alliances with other kinds of movements for uh, either national self-determination or ethnic liberation. And this, there is this struggle going on between these two visions of group identity. But what I, what I really feel deep down is that this struggle is, in a way, it's, um, it's endemic to group identity. There's no way to become a self without saying, this is me and this is you. Yeah. I'm Nathaniel sitting here and you're Shmuley, you're right. sitting there. Right. Right? And that is part of being a self. And it, the, the trick is to learn how to recognize the otherness of the other. Yeah while also embracing it. Yeah. That, you know, that's part of the way I understand Rabbi Abraham Yitzchak Akon Koch's world, worldview of Zionism versus his sons with Sfin Yehuda, in terms of that transition between more of a universalistic nationalism versus versus the latter, and that's obviously, obviously much earlier. But I, but I think the last question I want to ask you is about Buber. Uh, that one way it's been explained to me is that actually the spiritual encounter with the other can have no political implications, because that would turn um, the thou into an it. Um, that there might be later, but this encounter with the other has to remain right here so that it not become instrumental. I wonder, like, on an experiential level, um, well, if you agree with that read, if you agree with that argument, on an experiential level, how do we think about the encounter with another where um, we don't impose ideology upon that space or even conclusions, but allow ourselves to truly encounter them, but feel the ethical weight that emerges from the spiritual encounter with the other? Well, I, let, me, let me answer it this way. There have been in conflict zones, whether we're talking about Israel and Palestine or in the United States, uh, there have been attempts at dialogue. Yeah. Dialogues between, say, uh, Jews and African-Americans in the United States or uh, uh, other uh, uh, groups coded as, as white in the United States and African-Americans or other minority groups. In Israel, there are, there are dialogue efforts between Israelis and Palestinians. And I think that Buber is actually quite useful here yeah. because um, <laughs> it is one of the things that often emerges from these groups is that some people come into these groups saying, oh, okay, now we're together, we're all going to have a cup of tea and everything's going to be good. But often the people who are the less privileged groups, the, the less empowered groups in that encounter feel like, we can't do that right away. Yeah, right. We can't get to that I-thou thing right away right, right. because there are real concrete material things here. Right. And you have to confront the power imbalances in the dialogue. Right. 
And until you confront that, we can't really have an eye-thou relationship. In fact, if we pretended to have an eye-thou relationship, it would be a lie. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, we're going to be the disempowered group and you're going to be the empowered group. Yeah. And I think that, that is a, that's a profound lesson I think that could be actually drawn from Buber. Yeah. Is what are the conditions for achieving that eye-thou relationship and for it to be honest and true? Right? And, I, and I feel that although my turn to studying Kabbalah <coughs> is, a, is, a, is a fascination with mythology, um, but I feel that those stories really tell you it's not easy. It's not easy to encounter the other. And in a way, the language of the demonic, although it can get in the way of a true dialogue, also says to you, this is a real thing. This is a real opposition. And it can't, you can't just wave your hand for it to go away. It's something that you have to encounter the other. You have to encounter why it is that the split and division has happened and figure out how to overcome that. Mm -hmm. And that takes work. Yeah, yeah, right. So, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a student of, of modern South African history aside from visiting a few times and reading a few books, but this truth and reconciliation process of trying to understand like how, you know, where there's not going to be reparations involved um, or corrections, and yet just having a space to listen and sort of bring that dignity back to the space. Do you have a sense of how successful that approach has been? Well, I, I'm not an expert on South Africa, but I have studied the truth and yeah. reconciliation process yeah. and I've taught about it. Um, and there are a lot of criticisms. Of it. Yeah. The criticisms right. are that uh, uh, the, the truth and reconciliation process in a way is a compromise between not facing the past versus uh, on the one extreme and on the other extreme, bringing everyone to trial and, and, and long punishment uh, uh, who was in any way complicit with the apartheid regime. And the truth and reconciliation process is supposed to somehow stake out that middle ground um, and you read the transcripts and you see films and it's incredibly moving, yeah. incredibly moving. The people have to come forward and in a way they have to like confess their right. complicity. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, there are many people in South Africa uh, who feel that it uh, did not result in justice right. and that the society which remains uh, 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 a society marked by unequal distribution of power and resources, right. even now, so long after the end of apartheid, um, people feel like, well, maybe it was the truth and reconciliation process. Maybe we didn't we didn't fully yeah. uh, purify the country from the from the remnants of apartheid. Yeah. So I don't think that there's an easy answer to that. And certainly, if you think of other places in the world where there's deep divisions, right. you think of the Israelis and Palestinians. It, what would be a path to reconciliation? Right. It's by no means obvious, and it's important to recognize the difficulties and the hard work it takes to overcome that those barriers. Right. Fascinating stuff. Be sure to check out Professor Nathaniel Berman's uh, uh, wonderful books and articles. Thanks so much.